HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday on the Heritage Radio Network from Birchwick, Brooklyn, at Pizzeria, where Bird is Tuesday, uh, got some special, special guests, super excited. Got semi-regular, Paul Adams, the freelance now Paul Adams, the freelance drone-slash-food master, Paul Adams. That's me. Have, as usual, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Got Dave in the booth. What up? Nothing. But I'm sure you'll all be excited. Direct from the West Coast, San Francisco, the Twin Peaks Mission slash Noe Valley area, Harold McGee! <laughs> How you doing, Harold? Pretty well. Yeah? How about you? Doing well, doing well. So, uh, actually, this is like a first. I think Nastasia might have sent you the questions, so you've actually had time to look at the questions beforehand. A couple of them. Couple, yeah. yeah. So, like, you'll, yeah. people will get to see exactly how much better Harold is at this sort of stuff than I am. Uh, call in your questions uh, for uh, Harold McGee or for myself. Food or not food related to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Uh, so before I start, in the saga of the uh, Spinzol, the centrifuge that we're working on, Paul was like, hey, can you do cold brew coffee? In, in the spins all and I was like well spin all all so I'm sure I can therefore yes therefore yes uh, so we did a, a, a test uh, yesterday which was relatively successful because we were able to do it very quickly much more quickly than normal extremely successful yes because you're using espresso grounds which infuse very quickly but then you can spin them out in the centrifuge blah 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 but this morning as I was you know doing another test of it I wanted to do a much larger quantity so I was going to do like uh, like two liters right or the maximum capacity you could probably do if you're 
Paul does five to one coffee to uh, water. Yeah. So uh, you, you, the maximum you can do is about four hundred, three to four hundred grams of coffee uh, in the in the bucket uh, before it before it'll fill. And so you know that limits you to about two liters or somewhere in that range That's of liquid. Good. Yeah. Uh, so it can spin it all, but it cannot pump it all. It is not a pumps mm. all. So I have to think of a new technique. Uh, for doing larger quantities because, oh, my God, the, the coffee grounds are like sludge. They just build up and they settle. Huh. And, and, you know, the, the heavies, the fines keep, you know, float forever. That's the problem. The fines float forever, but the, the heavies, they go. And, like, so it just compacted in my pump tubes and I had to break. So I'm going to – I have to – I'm thinking of a new technique. Think about, this is what I'm going to try when I get home today. I'm going to go buy a couple pounds of coffee. Here's what I'm going to try to do. Get this. I want to put the dr- – get this. So what Paul does is he vacuum infuses his uh, cold brew to get a jump on actually getting the liquid into the uh, into the ground coffee. Correct? Yeah. You do it with a with a regular garbage food saver, right? Not like a decent vacuum machine or anything. I've tried both. Which saver is fine. I have the food saver lid that fits on a mason jar, and I do it in a half gallon mason jar, and it's very easy. Yeah, are half gallon mason jars pressure rated, or are you uh, flirting with death? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the food saver is not going to probably suck a hard enough vacuum to kill you. Anyway. It's not going to no. shatter that that thing. Although, uh, you know, safety. Uh, you know, I, I must say, from a safety standpoint, you probably should have a mesh net around it or like tape it with electrical tape. Look, glass is always okay until suddenly it is not. <laughs> right. It is not. Like, have you noticed that? Uh, do, do you know that that? If I, was I talking to you about this? Uh, when I was a kid. Right, all the way up until probably the time I was in high school, and definitely if you bought all the older stuff, uh, Pyrex meant what it said. Pyrex, fire, like Rex, glass, like borosilicate glass. Mm. It yeah. was clear, not greenish tinged, and you could put that sucker on the stove. They used to sell stovetop Pyrex, you know, borosilicate mm. glass. Mm. It's fundamentally labware, like a beaker. You're supposed to be able to put it over a Bunsen burner. It's it's real because. You know, they, uh, it doesn't uh, crack as it, it doesn't expand enough, to, I guess, to a crack as it goes up, right? You, yep. You're, you're yep. familiar with this, right, Harold? <laughs> Old time uh, Pyrex tea. Uh, you know, I used to have those tea tea vessels and all this. New Pyrex. You put new Pyrex on a stove, it will explode. It is no longer borosilicate glass, and some awful human being, some terrible, awful garbage enemy of quality. Satan mongering bastard, like kept the name Pyrex on this non borosilicate glass, and and when it explodes, it also doesn't explode into pleasant little pieces like uh, you know like safety glass would. It it shards out into your kitchen, all over your food. Yeah, and uh, and for another thing is that you might not know about glass is that uh, glass can have a lot of built-in uh, stresses in it that you know aren't apparent and the cl- cracks can slowly propagate uh, from uh, and what happens is as cracks propagate all of a sudden they can reach a critical point where they propagate extremely quickly mm-hmm. so I remember once in grad school we had a Pyrex new variety this is back when it was relatively new that you couldn't put Pyrex on the stove and uh, it was sitting on the counter like a day after we had used it and just boom exploded and Jeez. shattered glass all over our kitchen yeah so uh I only use them now for cold measuring when you have to see through things. But, uh, yeah, they're they're Satan. They're the devil, and uh, they should be taken to task for what they've done to what used to be a fine old brand name. What do you think? Here, here. Yeah. So, anyway, so back to the vacuuming. So, uh, you vacuum to speed up the the cold blue coffee, yes? Yeah. Fresh ground coffee is full of CO2. So, you pull that out with the vacuum so that liquid can then enter the grounds. Fresh ground, fresh roasted. Stale coffee ain't got nothing in it. It's got to be pretty stale. stale. Really? 
You've yeah. done the test on it. The, the that, that's the whole for the whole point on staling, weeks. right? Is it get? But that's what's like staling. Presumably, as you no longer have a positive pressure of CO two, you get more oxygen in, which causes rancidity, which is presumably where the cardboard flavor comes from. Harold, yeah, yeah. sounds I mean, right to me. So, I mean, it ha- like like anything else, there's probably always CO two, but there's like it probably is one of these. I'm making a I'm making a uh, a ski jump shape with my hand, you know, going down like this. So it's always some. Yes. But you're probably the most at the at the get go. Like you ever you ever pulled an espresso shot with coffee that you well you have because you're a roaster. You ever pull espresso shot right after you roast it and you and you get that insane like insane. Yeah. Do you you don't you're not a, you hate crema right, Paul? You're an anti crema person, aren't you? I'm just, I love crema. Who's the anti crema? A lot of people don't like crema. Are you an anti crema person, Harold? No. I'm you, not. you know those people though. Uh, no, no, I've never met an anti crema. Chris Young, Chris Chris Young, anti-cremist, huh. anti-cremist. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, because uh, a lot of the like uh, some of the more bitter compounds are some of the stuff that gets like uh, into that emulsion and float up to the top of an espresso thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people are against uh, kind of that, and they prefer the flavor of the stuff underneath. And we can run some tests next time you're over. I'll get my micro pipette, and we'll, we'll fraction based on height in the in the in the coffee. Uh, right when it's hot, right? We can do this. But uh, I think it's slightly different when you use hyper-fresh beans. And a lot of people used to tell you not to use hyper-fresh beans because uh, they didn't like that, that off-gassing. But I think it tastes good. I like it. So anyway, so then what, so then you uh, let it sit, and then you, you strain it. But you use coarse ground coffee. How long does it take you? I use fairly fine ground coffee. I let it sit under vacuum for 10 minutes, uh-huh. release the vacuum, and then until the spins all, I had to let it filter for several hours. Like a chump. Yes. You had to let it filter like a chump. Anyway, so what I'm going to try to do, see whether, you, see whether you like this. I'm going to put the coffee into the rotor dry and then use the force, the centrifugal force, to like, like force the liquid into the, into the coffee under pressure and then see if I can just continuously make it without having to do the vacuum step. And this way the coffee will pre-pack in. I'm a little worried that like in an espresso situation I'm going to get channeling and I'll just keep extracting out of the same uh, piece of the coffee as I go through. But this is also something that needs to be tested, Yeah. Wait yeah. yeah, I want to try it. Yeah, all right. Uh, or I could just, uh, you know, the thing is, I would like to do it continuously. I mean, I could just keep doing it in in batches, but I would like to be able to do it continuously. Right. Anyway, okay. You could what? Pack in the coffee and pre-wet it rather than totally dry. Yeah, no, but I'm I'm more worried about like as the like as water works its way through the coffee, it yeah. will be remo- it will be extracting crap from said coffee. As it extracts crap from said coffee that channel is now easier to extract through and once everything's hydrated and swollen. And so then it seems to me that because water is going to take the path of least resistance, the same way that when you poorly pack an espresso puck and you get the, the channels around the, around the outside, that I'm going to have something similar happen. And it, I don't know. Who knows? I'll test. I'll yeah. test. I'll have to get a refractometer. Do you have the tables to read coffee off of a regular refractometer, off a non, non-coffee? No, but I have a coffee refractometer. Wow, wow, wow. Very fancy. Paul Adams, super fancy man. Did, yeah, did, an aristocrat. Did you have to pay for that, or did you get that uh, uh, popular science back in the day? Popular science. Nice. You know what, people? Being a writer is like a good, like a, a magazine writer. I mean, I guess not anymore. But now, web, good deal, right, for that kind of thing? Extremely. For drones and refractometers, if that's what you, you know. Yes. Yes. Anyway. Dave, you want to take a call? Yes, I would love to take a call. Caller, are you on the air? Hello, gentlemen in the Sasha. Hi. How are you guys? Doing well. Great. Yeah. Um, my question is, is there a safe way to cook sunchokes? Uh, I have tried cooking them on low temperature about uh, 
225 overnight, and I still uh, have had a bad experience. So I'm wondering, is there any, uh, you know, morally uh, conscionable way to cook them and to serve them to my guests? You, my friend, have called on the right day. Harold wrote a whole chapter in his second book on the uh, flatulence-inducing powers of the sunchoke, and if she wishes to pipe up, Nastasia Lopez purposely poisoned one of her friends <laughs> with uh, undercooked sunchokes uh, on purpose. So I will just – and by the way, for those of you that don't know, sunchokes, they, they – in the majority of people, right, Harold? Cause severe gastrointestinal distress if eaten yeah. in large quantities. So, uh, Harold, why don't you take it away? All right. Well, uh, I, I'm afraid, at least from my understanding of sunchokes and experience with sunchokes, uh, you can make them less uh, difficult, progressively less difficult by cooking them, cooking them, cooking them. But when you do that, they lose texture and they get sweeter, sweeter, sweeter. So they become less themselves and more like, uh, I don't know, underground candy or something like that. And it's, I, I don't find that particular flavor especially nice when it, when it gets to that stage. So I, I would say that, um, you know, there's the, the saying in medicine, the, do, the dose makes the poison. I would I would just uh, you know figure out how many slices you can actually take and uh, and serve that number and just uh, yeah I, otherwise you're not going to have the the sunchoke experience <laughs> yeah okay. the good sunchoke yeah, yeah. experience so they, they mean like the, for those of you that don't aren't familiar not thinking about sunchokes all the time the culprit uh, in sunchokes is a long chain uh, polysaccharide inulin. Inulin is a, um, it's actually a, a bunch of linked up fructose molecules. It's long chain fructose. The other common thing we use that has a lot of, lot of inulin is agave. So when you long, 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 long roast agave, you convert the inulin and agave to fructose, which is why agave syrup is a high fructose product. Uh, and that is, of course, the main fermentable or the only fermentable uh, in uh, tequila and mezcal. Uh, so yeah, if you, the more you break it down, the sweeter that sucker is going to get. Um, but so, what's your? Have you tested your dose response relationship, Harold, with uh, sunchokes? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can. I can actually take like uh, a, a medium-sized one, or a couple of smaller ones, and really not feel it. But but also, I I don't mind feeling it a little bit, because you know it's a way of knowing that you're you're keeping your microbiome happy down well, there. Well, I was going to ask you, is there a difference in different people's... So the, the reason that it causes all those problems down there is that your body can't digest inulin, but the microbes in your gut have no problem digesting inulin, and when they do so, they produce uh, gas, and you know that causes uh, extreme discomfort, especially in some people looking at Nastasia Lopez. And I the, was helping their microbiomes. Uh, that's, that's, Although it's not poisoning. Does this, mean, uh, question, uh, does this mean that you could actually ferment the fungi and ferment out some or of the inulin um, that way as a, a, a possible um, way of, of, of getting rid of um, some of the, the undigestibles? I mean, yeast won't eat it, but there's probably a bacterial ferment will do it, right? Yeah, yeah, but they're, they're going to do uh, what cooking would do. They're going to break down the long chains into small uh, molecules and then uh, use those for energy. So you're, again, going to kind of eat away the structure of the, 
uh, of the root and and turn it into something else. I mean, it could be really interesting. It could be delicious. Have you tried the sunchoke liqueur, topinambor? I have not tried no, it. No, I have not. I have not no. tried it either. Paul, you tried that sucker? No. Where I mean, is it from? Uh, I don't know. I think it's a European thing. Hmm. But, I don't, uh, you know, it, that's the French word, right? So yeah. I'm assuming yeah. it's somewhat, it's from a French-speaking country, a francophone country. What yeah. about one of your enzymes, Dave? Uh, I don't have an inulin-breaking enzyme, although we can call uh, Guzmer and see what's going on. I, I'm wor- I have a cellulase enzyme, but I haven't had time to play with it because of all the spins all stuff I'm doing. I want to try to take the strings out of celery with it while, and let it remain crunchy. That's my goal. It's one of my life goals. Uh, but um, That's why it's called cellulase. Yeah, cellulase. Uh, so, uh, Harold, do you think there's a difference between different... So, for instance, uh, like certain bacteria can ferment and produce gas while they, a different group of bacteria can ferment the same product and not produce gas. Is there a difference between different people's microbiome? And so if you consume a lot of something, could you favor a bacteria that maybe doesn't produce as much gas when it's eating it? Like you're getting some sudden rush from something that can be like, oh, man, they take it in, and then like that, that colony uh, uh, will get superseded by a different microbe, or is that not possible? No, I think it is possible, and uh, you're reminding me of some research that was done back in the, I think it was the 90s, uh, on people's tolerance to beans, which, which uh, have some of the same problems for the same reasons, indigestible carbohydrates. And I think what I recall is that people could, with time, tolerate more. So, uh, and that could be one of two different things. It could be uh, other microbes getting in on the act and uh, using those carbohydrates and not generating gas, or it could be other microbes in the community taking advantage of the gas that's being produced by the microbes that can digest inulin and uh, turning that into uh, something else. Mm-hmm. So they, they could be taking up the hydrogen as soon as it's generated and using it for their own metabolic processes. So I, either, I, like, whatever the mechanism, there is some sort of gut, uh, like, um, uh, adaptability to these non-fermentable carbohydrates. So we just go, like, build, your, build a tolerance up. Hey, the, the awesome thing about building a tolerance up, my friend, is that then you can pull the real Nastasia. Nastasia only went halfway. She had a her- horrible experience with uh, sunchokes. She and Piper cooked a boatload of them because they just hadn't thought about it. They hadn't read The Curious Cook, cook apparently. And, uh, and they had, like, a horrible night of gastrointestinal distress because they were, they were basically just eating a big pile of cooked sunchokes in sauce, right? Mm-hmm. And then Nastasia invited her friends to a picnic where she served the exact same dish to them and then just picked around all the sunchokes without, like, making a big deal about picking around it. And they weren't looking, and so that, that's how she did it. But if she was a real baller, right, if she was really going to push the envelope of evil, she would slowly, slowly, slowly build up a tolerance to sunchokes, whereby she could <laughs> eat, right. like, a lot of them, and then she could be gustily, like, forking them into her face, like, with, with you, know, you know, complete lack of concern the entire time. And then, and then her friends would be chewing on that stuff, and then they would get wrecked. That's true. Yeah. That life goal, my friend, right there. It's just a thing full of life goals. Brilliant. Yeah. Actually, so I had another... Uh, by the way, it turns out, did you know this? Uh, not all life goals are worthwhile. Is the guy still on the phone? I don't know. I, don't know. I think his uh, baby is. Oh, uh, nice. Awesome. Sorry, I, uh, I, I turned that. All right, thanks, guys. Hey, no problem. Uh, so the uh, I, I, I achieved a life goal, finally, 
and it was horrible. It was horrible. I made I, like so for years. I've wanted to make Hugo Hugo de Papas Fritas, like French fry juice, uh, because it's what I used to say to Dax all the time. We were joking about because he knows Spanish and I don't, so I would just make up random Spanish words, and so that was French fry juice. So I have this new enzyme that allows me to completely like liquefy and then sacrifice uh, things. These distillers enzymes I'm using San Extra and Termomil from Novozymes. And uh, so I cooked some French fries. They're pretty good. They were okay. They weren't my best French fry. I didn't do SPL soak them, but they were like a real double, you know, triple cook uh, fry. Good. Uh, I ate one, verified. They tasted good. Uh, and uh, then I blended them with like a little bit of water and some enzymes and uh, mashed them out in, a, in basically like you would for liquor. Like li- completely liquefied them. They were completely liquid. Uh, sweet, sweet, sweet. And then I spun them in the spinzol, and I got French fry juice, and it was just wretched. It tasted terrible. <laughs> was it salted? Uh, no. Uh, maybe I should have salted it, but I just tasted it. I was like, and you know, much like you know, Harold was saying before, this is just like, you know, like all these years I've been thinking about it, and it just yeah. wasn't what I wanted. It just yeah. was not good. I mean, maybe if I'd had a really high-powered centrifuge that I could, like, make it totally clear, like, you know, I would need, like, 40 or 50. I'd probably need, like, 40,000 Gs to really do what I wanted there. But even so, like, I wasn't, like, you know how, like, when you're working on something, it's going somewhere, and you're like, oh, this is going somewhere. I tasted like this, and I'd be like, I've been wasting my brain power thinking about this. This is, a little, like, you know, not, I'm not going to say it's the worst mistake I've made, but it's, like, you know, it's not... What was wrong with it? The sweetness? It just tasted, yeah, it was just tasted bad. It just didn't, it wasn't what I wanted to Don't have happen. Up, it wasn't like, it was in my mind, I don't even know what I want in my mind. In my mind, I'm eating French fries and there's some like, like terrifically refreshing drink that I'm having. And in my mind, they combine. The same way that French fries and ice cream combine, right? Like French fries and ice cream are delicious in, in combination. Like, have you ever taken like a sundae and just jammed some French fries into it and eaten it? it it's good. It tastes good. But like, <laughs> it's good. Uh, I mean, take my word for it. But the, uh, or don't, just go try it. It's, it's easily tested uh, hypothesis. But the, uh, yeah, this is just not not good. Not you carbonated? I did not because I, t- you know, look how many there. I've carbonated so many things. I have a pretty I, like I feel at this point I have a, pr- I'm a pretty good judge of will this carbonate properly, and I just there's just nothing pleasant. I was not like fermented. I could maybe I could ferment French it. French fried beer. But but the problem is is that anything that has leftover oil that's left to ferment that oil is eventually going to go rancid, especially when there's only a little bit of it there. So maybe what you need to do is make. Fresh fry, uh, French fries a la minute, and then shake it whatever with whatever you want to... And, and then, then get that out? Yeah. Yeah, I'll try yeah. that. I'll try that. I once made a French fry booze. It's not really... It's not... It's not French fry juice unless it's literally the juice of a French fry. It is not <laughs> Hugo de Papas Fritas unless it is literally French fry juice. I have made French fry infusions that were okay, uh, but they don't last. They go rancid. You need to do it a la minute. They yeah. taste yeah. really bad after that. And interestingly, you know that that flavor of old potato? You know that flavor of that potato that you had in the fridge and you took it out and you eat it, that nastiness? Yeah. I don't know what causes that. Do you know what causes that? I, I think it's methional. Really? It's a, a sulfur-containing aldehyde from methionine, the, the amino acid. And that's I the think. flavor of old potato. I think it, it's the it, it's part of the flavor of freshly made potato, but I think it becomes stronger and stronger and and swamps out the the other more delicate things. Is it is it very volatile? Is that why when you fry a potato that you've had in the fridge, it it tastes good? Like is that why you can like refrigerate like like let a fry go cold in between first and second fry, or or, or is it? 
do you have to store it frozen? Like if you take a between first and second fry, you can put a fry in the fridge till it gets that nasty texture. And then when you mm. fry it, the crisp fry, then it's good again. Is that because it's volatile and it just gets driven off? Well, I, I think probably what's happening is that you're you're driving off maybe an excess of that, and you're also generating all those uh, aldehydes from the frying oil, which which are going to dominate. But they're the, the aldehydes from the frying process are um, polyunsaturates, so they're really reactive. And I think that's part of the reason maybe that the uh, that your experiment didn't work is that they're if they're sitting there for any length of time with stuff that can react with them, like proteins in particular, then it, it's going to happen and they're going to go away. Yeah. All right. Hey, I got another caller with a question for Harold. Good caller. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, speaking of foods that cause discomfort, uh, <laughs> this, is Jeff, this is Jeffrey in Costa Mesa. How's it going? Thank you. Um, Hi. I, I had an experience recently that reminded me of when uh, Harold's sense of smell was wiped out for like a month uh not not nearly as bad um but for about a week everything that i ate had a bitter aftertaste and it made and it made eating very uncomfortable and and yeah i went into like a mild depression because food was not something i looked forward to um so after scouring the internet and my memory to try and think of what i may have done or eaten to cause this First, I just figured I had a brain tumor, and my my taste, you know, receptors are all screwed up. Uh, but it 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 looks like it was I had been pounding pine nuts. Oh, you ate yeah. one. Yeah. But it, it had been a couple of days since I had eaten a pine nut. Um, but that seems to be the culprit, and I'm wondering if that sounds accurate and why. Huh. Our friend our friend it. Nick Wong got taken out by a pine nut. Yeah, and and uh, I think Francis Lamb also got taken out by a pine nut, or, or at least had a bitter one, and then and and it, it I don't I'm not sure it lasted for a week, but uh, but he was concerned. So do you know so, the? Yeah. Have you researched the? Uh, it's the, t- typically it's one of these kind of like uh, very. It's kind of a re- they're always like it's the Chinese pine nuts. But is that actually true? Is there like yeah. pine nuts from China? Yeah, no, it's a it's a particular species of pine from which these particular pine nuts come that uh, and they contain apparently naturally some compound that uh, that reacts with um, our taste buds and gives us that kind of uh, bitter uh, hangover. And I haven't looked at the literature for a couple of years, but as of a couple of years ago, uh, they had no clue what that molecule was and how it acted. So they don't know anything. So, like, like my guess is it we locks into your bitter receptors and lets them fire on other things, right? That that would make sense, yeah. yeah. But, but and maybe most... what you have to do is, uh, because our taste cells are constantly being replaced... Maybe you just have to get you have to slough those off. Ooh, just wait it out. Before, yeah. So unlike yeah. miraculin, which is a temporary bind and gets washed away, or gymnemic acid, which is a temporary bind and gets washed away, you're saying this might permanently f those uh, taste receptors, and you have to wait for them to get regenerated, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But like I say, I haven't looked at the literature for for so, a while. So it like jams them open. That's the theory, or something. Well, I mean, that's that's my theory. Like shoves I, a crowbar into that receptor and <laughs> right. keeps it keeps it open all the time. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. So, Harold, from what you'd read, is it does this affect everybody if if we eat that particular species of pine, or is it only certain people that react this way? Yeah. So, uh, 
it's it's one of those subjects where you know uh, nobody's going to pay for the research that we would all like to have done on it. <laughs> so, so it's it was basically as of a few years ago mostly anecdotal, and uh, and really hard to draw firm conclusions about. But you know because people do vary in their sensitivity to bitter in the first place. My guess is that it probably affects most people that way, but not everybody. And maybe the people it it doesn't uh, affect are the people who can't detect bitter in the first place. Right. How much do we know? Any advice on avoiding those particular pine nuts? By American pine nuts. How can identify? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've actually seen now in... in some stores, people will will label they've they've got their Chinese pine nuts for not much, and then their European pine nuts for like five times that that amount. Are so, are American Southwestern pine nuts uh, commercially available at all or no? Uh, I've seen them a couple of times, but but only regionally. You know, I've I've never seen them for sale in a in a general sort of way. They good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember going to the Grand Canyon in the winter once, and uh, uh, in an area nearby there, there were pine pine cones on the ground, and they'd already been, you know, squirrels had clearly gotten at them, or jays or something like that, so we cracked a few open and tasted them, and they were good, and, and there was no hangover. No hangover, so, yeah. yeah. Huh. The... Uh, how many times out of 100 when, Nastasia, when we saw new students in the Italian program at the FCI, did they burn those freaking pine nuts when they, 100, like 99.9 times out of 100, it's pine nuts are those things, it's a classic thing when you're learning to cook, right? You try to toast the pine nuts and they yeah. go from like zero to ruined like this. It's like you have to have an eagle eye on those pine nuts. Like that's what you should, like that's the, like, you know, like the... You must be able to have the mental ability to keep track of your pine nuts if you're going to make it in the kitchen. Yeah, you know yeah. They're, I mean? they're like the garlic of the nut world. Yeah, right? yeah, they're, they're gone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, oh, you know what a question I had for you, Harold, years ago? I don't think we ever figured it out. You or I don't remember. Is uh, why it is that hazelnuts clearly have something in the middle of them that that browns more rapidly yeah. than the stuff on the exterior of the nut. So that's why the hazelnuts always, you can think that you haven't over-roasted them, and when you crack them open, the interiors are over-roasted. Yeah, yeah. What the heck is that? Yeah, I still don't know. I mean, again, one of those questions nobody's going to pay to do the research, but uh, it must be... So the the cool thing about, uh, one of the many cool things about hazelnuts is that they're hollow on the inside, and I thought for a while that maybe it had something to do with that, that there's this... Uh, surface that you don't find in other nuts, and the the part of the hazelnut that isn't surface doesn't get brown as fast as the surface part. So I thought it had something to do with just surfaceness. Uh, but then you know thought about the thermodynamics of it and decided that probably wasn't correct. So my guess is there's probably some kind of coating of I don't know uh, like a sugar or something, something like that. that browns yeah. faster. I don't yeah. know. Well, okay, so. That, thing, that cavity is the place between the two cotyledons, right? Yeah. So in there, somewhere in there, maybe there's, I don't know, that's, other stuff is happening, right? The, yeah. 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 We've, so uh, I've been thinking this, uh, not just about hazelnuts, but about things in general. We should, we should make a list of interesting questions like that that no one's going to pay to actually do the research on and just put them out there so that people who have the resources and curiosity 
maybe will use their their cool machines to figure out something that you know the professionals never will. Yeah, maybe maybe Ariel at MIT can get on some of these problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hear, hear that cooking issues, people? Let's start a list. Keep a list generated. Yeah. 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 All right. I like that. There's lots of... Ra- this is the... Lo- to me, no offense to Hervé Tis. Offense, uh, offense atten- intended, by the way. But, <laughs> like, like it's more... In- like, these questions that, like, aren't haven't been answered are somehow more interesting than, like, kind of the stuff that he runs through. What do you think? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, enough enough I passion. wanted to ask, on the subject of different people's responses to bitterness. How much do we know, not just about quantifying that, but qualitative different types of bitterness? Like for me, I can drink extremely strong coffee and I love it, but even a faintly strong beer is much too bitter for my sensibilities. Uh, yeah, yeah. So one of the interesting things about about taste receptors is that we, we, we have basically... Uh, one or two for most of the taste modalities except for bitterness for which mm-hmm. we have dozens and it's probably because there are so the body doesn't really care so much to distinguish between say alkaloids which are bitter yeah and uh you know hop compounds which are bitter uh it just wants you to know that these things are, are these complex molecules are there. They're probably not good for you, so pay attention. And so uh, we have receptors for all these different uh, categories of chemicals, metals and, and things like that as well. But they all send basically the same signal, which is bitterness, which is uh, just watch out. Right. And I think that's what's going on. You've got, uh, of those dozens of receptors, you've got most of them, but there, there's one that you have extra copies of and yeah. maybe not enough copies or not as, as many copies of, uh, of the coffee one. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Right, let's hit a question we got from Susan. Writing from Switzerland. Love your show. Can't figure out from your website if this is the right way. Well, guess it is. Here you are. Uh, is there any reason other than the color of the meat for me to use curing salt when making corned beef? Most formulas I find on the internet call for it. I don't care about the color. I'm doing an eight-day brine and plan to sous vide the brisket for 48 hours of 60C. Thanks, Susan. So, um, that's interesting. I didn't have a chance to research. I don't know if you did, Harold. So, like, everyone always says that uh, gets the cured color and flavor. But then I wasn't able to find any immediate references on what cured flavor is from a, from a relatively quick curing standpoint in nit- nitrates or nitrates. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I don't know about quick curing, but but uh, it's been studied in, in longer curing. And I don't, uh, you know, I can't cite chapter and verse about how long, but... Uh, I think it's the case, you know, that uh, these molecules are, uh, they contain nitrogen, which is reactive and which is going to react with stuff in the meat uh, that, uh, and produce compounds that you wouldn't have otherwise, and they're antioxidants, and so they're going to prevent some reactions from taking place that would otherwise, and so they're going to shift the flavor of the meat uh, when it's cooked to, to something a little different. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure most of the textural properties are from the salt proper, right? Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, because it's there in such large quantities and it's affecting all the, all the, the protein conformation. But, yeah, so, so you, you think, yeah, reason to use it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I can identify cured flavor. Well, but the thing is, have you had a lot of things that are, like, like I've never, I've always said, yeah, I mean, like, one tastes like, one tastes like, Cooked pork, and the other one tastes like cured pork. Yeah, right? I've done forty-eight yeah. hour hams. The, the, well, but in other words, have you ever done side by side one nitrite, one not? Yes. And the result? Cured flavor. 
Cheers. It's like a slightly sweet meatiness. It's hard to describe. A little... Hard to describe. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. And so, like, you know, for years, I just would say, cured color and flavor. But, like, you can't really describe <laughs> it, but you know that. And then you say, well, bacon obviously doesn't taste like pork belly. Uh, but then they're like, well, that's because it's been smoked. But, I'm like, no, it's not just the smoke. Yeah. It's not just the yeah. smoke. You know what I mean? It's. Yeah. And, and, I, and I also think it's not just one thing, it's preventing some reactions from taking place and encouraging other reactions to, to take place so that you just shift the center of gravity of the flavor from one area to another. Right. Are they going to get substantially less oxidation in beef brisket than you will in pork belly? Uh, yeah. I'm just saying. Like, I wonder whether it has a, a more profound effect than on um, fats that are uh, m- you know, more unsaturated, like pork right. fat versus mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. beef, which is, uh, has you know, much more saturated fat base. I'm, I just wonder. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like maybe, maybe, maybe pork is like, you know, it's absolutely necessary to use it because you're actually a lot of, you're not just creating flavor, but you're, as you say, limiting things. This, I'm just talking off the top of my head here, whereas in beef is a much more stable meat in terms of um, oxidation. For for the fat part, yes, but um, every cell has uh, has um, uh, what are they called uh, uh, phospholipids? Yes, yes, true. in the membranes, they and better, they're yeah. and they're always unsaturated uh, to varying degrees. So I think you've always got it, and it doesn't take a lot of. And uh, uh, unsaturated uh, lipid oxidation for you to notice it. So I think probably what's going to be important is what's in the membranes and not just what's in the storage fat. Fair enough. Uh, here's one I hope you have an answer to because I do not. Uh, hello, Cooking Issues crew. I've been trying to, or maybe Paul's done this, uh, although you're an East Coaster, so I doubt it. Uh, I've been trying to find some info on the interwebs regarding uh, cooking whole wild abalone in a low-temperature setup so to bypass a tenderization step normally associated with cooking abalone. The few articles that I have found usually deal with the tiny farmed abalone found in live tanks at Asian grocery stores or fish markets. However, these have a far different flavor, texture, and toughness than the wild, large red abalone that we harvest here in North, uh, Northern California. The brutal nature of pounding the crap out of these delicious uh, sea animals after slicing very thin to render them tender enough to chew, and the fact that I would like to be able to cut thin, uh, thick steaks or cubes, or even cook whole, and have it be as tender as the aforementioned violently tenderized scallopini of gastropod, has me seeking new methods of cooking. I have a commercial vac and a jewel... Immersion circulator jewel uh, from uh, Chef Steps, our good buddies. Uh, so ready to go. This is a very rare delicacy for most, and not something that they would feel comfortable with possibly wasting precious uh, precious abalone flesh on trial runs. Perhaps you or someone from the Chef Steps crew have tackled this issue, uh, as they are up in the Pacific Northwest and have probably cooked abalones this way before. Any help would be great. Thanks, Josh from NorCal. So uh, I don't have any experience uh, with with um, uh, you know cooking fresh abalone. Although I had some delicious fresh abalone. In China, like really, really good, big, uh-huh. like good, and and whole, like and good. Uh-huh. I don't know how they did it. And I will just say this: I spoke to Grant at Chef Steps when I was out there a week and a half ago, or whatever, about his preparation of gooey duck, which was, I think, one of the greatest gooey ducks I've ever had. And I thought it was just the low temperature cooking that he had used because he used a CVAP to do the low temperature cooking on it. And you guys have actually had—I had it with you that night, Harold. We were there the same night, and I think Paul, you had it at some other time. Their gooey duck was great, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he put it in a vacuum bag and beat the crap out of it. So like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, man, just that low temperature cooking like made it that tender. He's like that and beating the crap out of it. Uh, and I think he used 
that to just heat it up without actually uh, cooking it. I think that was how he did it. He massively tenderized it and then just warmed it uh-huh. rather than cooking it all the way through. But do you have any uh, abalone expertise? I looked up high-pressure uh, uh, processing. Most people who tenderize whole abalone, it looks like they either do a very long braise or they pressure cook it. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's helpful. What do you, what do you, what do you got on this here? Uh, well, I mean, he said it. It's a rare delicacy. It's so rare that I've never had it. I've I've had the the farmed abalone, but you know, basically out there, if you're not diving for it yourself, or you know someone who's diving for it, you just don't see it. So I have no experience with it. Whatsoever. But when you're doing that, or like, so when you cook octopus for a long time, what's your, okay? You've done a lot of work on octopus, so let's just let's just look at uh, at things that get tough and then need to either be cooked rapidly. Uh, or beaten and cooked rapidly or cooked very little or cooked a long time. So you've spent a lot of work on this. So let's pretend for a minute that, because they, they probably have fairly similar muscle chemistry, right? I mean, like in terms of like what makes them, one's obviously much tougher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I have worked with the, the little ones and uh, their meat is just so different from, from octopus that... Uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure that the, the information is transferable. Uh, but, I mean, so what I would try, and this is another example of something, no one's going to pay to do it, so somebody do it and then let the rest of us know about it. Well, um, let's put it this way. Do you like pressure-cooked octopus or no? Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's okay. You don't think it's mushy? Uh, depends on, I mean, that's the problem. It depends on how long it's been done. Uh, What's your so, go-to octopus? Uh, long, long and slow. Yeah, yeah. See, I think bagging the abalone and then figuring out what time temperature thing. But the, it, again, t- t- here's my thing, right? So the farmed one is going to be different from the wild one, right? Different species of uh, what is it? Haliotis, right? Uh, yes. Different species, uh, different size, different age, um, but. If you figure out how to cook the cheap one and make it tender, it seems like you then could limit the number of trials you have to pull with the real deal, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would bet some form of uh, bagging it. I mean, the, I looked up people pressure cooking it, and they seem to enjoy pressure cooking it whole. But then, I mean, it's going to be pressure cooked. It's not going to be, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And it, by the way... I'm not a huge fan in general of using uh, protease enzymes on meat. Are you, Harold? No. No, yeah. (laughs) But but is it mainly because they get mushy on the surface but the interior is not fixed? Yeah. I'm wondering in an abalone, because of the structure of uh, the meat uh, and the the fibers in it, whether or not you could do a quick, uh, basically make an enzyme solution and vacuum infuse it into the entire thing and then have the tenderization happen throughout... Um, or even use uh, high pressure in like an EC or something and force the enzyme into the meat structure under pressure. That actually probably worked better. And then, um, in fact, uh, when you open that and it foams back out again, you'll also tenderize by internally ripping the animal apart as the uh, bubbles come out. Hmm. I'm wondering whether that might be a decent uh, uh, approach uh, if it's quick. I mean, it's these long soaks in things that mushify the outside. That's what makes it awful, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and maybe doing what you just said, but after a preliminary pounding to kind of loosen things up to begin with. Right, and then... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe. I don't know. Um, all right, uh, Nastasia, did you find that question? Mm-hmm. All right, why don't you read it for me? 
This was a question we had a couple of weeks ago that I missed on uh, coconut uh, fat. Okay, so hi, Dave and Sassia, David and guests. Many, thing, many thanks for answering my question on plug-and-play PID controllers or freezers. Okay. Read it with feeling, Nastasia. Typically in the U.K., canned coconut milk is between 16 to 18% fat content and stabilized with guar gum. I've used this both directly in shaken drinks and made a syrup with equal parts by weight of coconut milk and sugar and other versions where I'll... I've diluted the coconut milk with, say, a further 25% by volume with water before adding equal weight of sugar. Can I just get to the question? Okay. Man. Do you have any pointers for making or using coconut milk where the flocculating slash falling out of emulsion can be avoided? Okay. So you have hit a very hard problem. Years ago, I spoke with Scott Riefler, who's uh, the head of, uh, of Tick Gums out on the West Coast, and this is a known problem. Coconut fat... Suspending coconut fat in a liquid is a known difficult uh, problem. you have any experience with this, uh, Harold? I don't. No. Yeah. Known difficult problem. And the reason is is it's hard. Coconut fat is hard. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, literally hard, not difficult. Like, literally hard and uh, hard to suspend. So, uh, if you, it, when people are using coconut in beverages, right uh, – so the stuff that they make, coconut milk that they make that they stabilize is fine for soups uh, where you're going to stir it. And typically – and those are stabilized, I think you're right, with guar and other things. But for the beverage application, which are going to be served cold, right, uh, it's a much more difficult problem to keep the fat emulsified uh, and not stop it from flocking together when it's cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for that, you need to turn to a product we have here named after Anastasia, the Coco Lopez <laughs> coconut cream. But the problem with Coco Lopez coconut cream is it's extremely sweet. Right now, if you want to see just how difficult it is to keep that stuff emulsified in your pina colada, and why, basically, unless you use a lot of fancy techniques, you really need to go buy the Coco Lopez. I will read to you the ingredient list of Coco Lopez: coconut milk, all right, sugar, water, polysorbate sixty, sorbitan monosterate, prop salt, propylene glycol alginate. Mono and diglycerides, citric acid for acidity, guar gum, and locust bean gum. So what you have here is it just like it's like they took they took the biggest elephant gun they could get, shoved it full of a mass of thickeners, uh, stabilizers because PGA is an emulsifier and a thickener slash stabilizer. and actual emulsifiers, most of which are based on stearic acid, uh, you know which is you know going to work in these applications. then we're like. And they blew it into this thing. This thing is like the most stabilized commodity like on earth. And let me tell you something about industry. Industry is not about adding a bunch of crap that they don't need. So it, like chefs, right? Chefs, when a chef comes up with a recipe and they've used 18,000 thickeners, right? But they've gone through like five days of figuring out what's going on and they finally find the recipe that works. You know what they don't do? They don't go back and one by one yank the things they put into it out to see whether they actually need it, right? Like they don't. So they write the recipe with that huge like poop spray of ingredients in it. And then eventually some knucklehead forgets to put it in and was like, chef, I forgot to put it in. And then they go taste it and they're like, hey, it's still good. Don't put it in anymore, right? That's how it works. <laughs> right. And so uh, especially because these ingredients have a relatively low cost of use relative to the rest of the food you're buying in a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. So chef's recipes very, very rarely get changed after they're made. Um, 
that's not the way it works in industry. Like, seriously, like, the price of PGA goes up by a nickel, and all of a sudden, everyone nukes PGA from their, uh, that's propylene glycol alginate. This actually happened. Uh, nukes PGA from their formulation so they can use something else that has a lower cost in use because it's millions of dollars at stake. So, uh, the fact that the Coco Lopez Corporation uses such a large, uh, you know, uh, wealth of, of stabilizers and thickeners means they need it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, let me see. Uh, oh, my phone's being... Uh, we got to wrap up in a minute, Dave. All right, so I'll, I'll read this here. Uh, so Ken Ingber, longtime uh, listener for... Where's Boston, right? Yep. Boston town. Uh, where Are you not going to Boston now? You're not doing the end of the Harvard this year? I uh, uh, did that last week. How was it? Last week. It was good. It was good. Any good projects? Uh, there were some fun ones. Uh, transparent potato chips. Uh, How transparent? Uh, transparent, transparent. And Very crispy? Transparent. Uh, uh, that uh, a little too... Uh, Hard rather than crispy, so need some work. Need some work. So, well, how did they make them transparent? Uh, they boiled potatoes in water to make a potato flavored uh, liquid, and then added potato starch. Uh, 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 so not and then measured breaking forces and things like that. For, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Tastes good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. a potato chip. Um, like a like a Pringles. Ooh, so not like a potato. <laughs> right. Like wait, a potato. Here we go. One oh, minute. All right. All right. Uh, wait, before I say it, what you, do you, have you had a real Maui potato chip, kettle cooked, hand kettle cooked in, from Maui? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. They are enjoyable. Yeah, they're delicious. Yes. Uh, I've stumbled across an old episode from Ken Ingber, uh, in 2011 in which Dave mentioned the Canadian centrifuge that was originally known as the Searval SS1. That's the danger fuge for all of you uh, who are keeping track. And I wondered if years later, maybe some co- subconsciously, that could have figured into naming the Searzal and more closely related but apparently safer, Spinzal. Good luck. He gives us good luck. Uh, when I was a kid, my dentist used to make his own amalgam for fillings. Remember, amalgam used to have uh, mercury in it. Yep. Using a tabletop centrifuge with two or four test tube-like vessels that spun without a housing. Occasionally, the vessel would uh, let go and fly into a wall. My analytic faculties and legal training, still embryonic at that time, were sufficient to lead me to believe that this was pretty dangerous. And not much later in life, I wondered if Dr. Roskin became as mad as a hatter as a result. Best regards, Ken. All right, well, listen, Harold, thanks for coming over. You, I, you, know, you should always be on the East Coast. You should come back to the East Coast. You, know, you love it too much in San Francisco. Sure. You're too much of a San Francisco man. <laughs> Nastasia, anti-Sanfrancisco. Yeah, uh, but anyway, actually, I had a good time. Yeah, you, you, me too, me yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, all right, all right. Uh, come back anytime, Paul. Thanks for coming. This has been Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.